So if you go to the Sea of Galilee, you can visit a place called Capernaum, a place that is mentioned in all of the Gospels, a place where we know Jesus spent a lot of time. And it is situated right on the north above the Sea of Galilee, so it's south-facing onto the water. Uh, The Sea of Galilee really picture a large lake. And um, when we were there a few weeks ago on our pilgrimage, um, the water was so gentle, just these little tiny waves lapping against the rocky shore in a way that it was very hard for us to imagine the sea being stirred up and to imagine the fear of the disciples when they were in the boat on that same body of water. But that little village of Capernaum has been mostly excavated now in the most wonderful way so that you can see a neighborhood that is still partially underground, but you see the walls of the many homes of people who all lived there. And then, most exciting of all, one of those homes is believed to be the home of Simon Peter. Peter the Apostle, he and his wife and his mother-in-law, we hear about that very home and Jesus spending time there in the Gospels. And then, really surprisingly, if you do get to visit, you will see that there is a church that is built above Peter's home. Now, it's better than it sounds, but the church literally, if you see it, looks like a spaceship. (laughs) Um, It is built mostly in the round. It's mid-20th century, built by the Franciscans, and of many wonderful sanctuaries that we got to experience on our trip. That was one of my favorite places, believe it or not. There was just a special quality of a church that was built around a living place, a real home of the actual Apostle Peter. And they have a clever thing in the bottom, sort of in the middle and bottom of the church is an open space with glass and you can look down right into Peter's living room, which the church hovers right above. Now, as I described, there's sort of a neighborhood of homes and it it goes on for a little bit. And on the end of it, about maybe 100 meters away, is an ancient synagogue, the ruins of an ancient synagogue you see, first of all, the white stones of a synagogue built in the 300s in the 4th century with the decorations and and carvings in the rock. Below it is basalt stone. That is the original synagogue from Jesus' time where we know Jesus did many things, including offering the teaching in the Gospel of John in that very synagogue where he said, he is the bread of life. You can go there, you can see it. Now, one of the things that surprised me, a learning for me, was in the stone of the white stone synagogue that is above, you can see carved in important decoration with meaning. You see the the Star of David like we have up here on our railing. And next to it, you can see pomegranates. Of course, pomegranates grow in that region, but I didn't know that the pomegranate is a symbol in ancient Jewish art with an important purpose. You may already know this, but I didn't realize that a a pomegranate has exactly 613 seeds. I don't know if you've ever counted. Um, Actually, I looked it up. They don't. (laughs) Um, Some have less, some have more. Um, But the traditional belief is that a pomegranate has 613 seeds, and as I'm sure you all do know, that is the same number as how many mitzvot are in the Torah. How many commandments? There are 613 laws, if you count them all up. 
And so when you see the pomegranate, it reminds you of what a gift the Torah and the law of the Torah is to God's people. You remember those 613 mitzvot. And so with that in mind, we can hear the question of the lawyer who comes to test Jesus, and he says, which of all the mitzvot, which of all those 613 laws is the most important one? And Jesus, being a, a good rabbi and a good teacher and knowledgeable in the law, has an answer. He actually has two answers. He begins quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, that we must love the Lord with all our being, with all our, height, uh, all our um, heart and mind and strength, and a second, which is like it, and which is intrinsically related, Leviticus 19, verse 18, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And he says, upon this hang all of the mitzvot and the prophets, all of the law and the prophets. In the Gospel of Luke, we get the same story, slightly different. The author of Luke has a slight different emphasis, and interestingly, it's not on the lips of Jesus, but on the lips of the lawyer himself. The lawyer comes to Jesus, and Jesus asks the lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers in the exact same way, love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus says back to him, you have spoken correctly. Do this and live. Do this and live. William Sloan Coffin, commenting on this, said, I thought we lived in order to love, but apparently not. We love in order to live. Do this and you will live, Jesus says. Only by love do we escape the sarcophagus of self. Only by love do we escape the sarcophagus of self. Do this and you will live. Well, Luke goes on, and the lawyer then prompts Jesus, asking him another testing question. And it, you kind of get the feeling that the lawyer doesn't really want to do it and live. <laughs> when he says, well, who then is my neighbor? How do you define the word neighbor? I've lived in D.C. now a little over four years, and I've known some lawyers, and I, I'm not going to say anymore. <laughs> so who then is the neighbor? And Jesus answers with a parable, one of the most famous of all of his parables, one that actually I think we have three different windows that depict it, and it is, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Also on our trip, by the way, we got to see the road. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a famous road, and that is the road that the certain man was walking along when he was beset by robbers. It is a wilderness territory, rocks and boulders, lots of hiding places and caves where bandits could wait to prey upon vulnerable people walking that road alone in the heat and in the dryness of the wilderness. And so according to the parable, a certain man is walking along, and then uh, robbers attack him. They take everything from him, strip him, and leave him half dead. And then one man walks along. The first man is a priest, one of the holy men and revered in the community, certainly heading toward the temple. And what does the priest do? He walks around the man and keeps on going, doesn't stop. The next person, a Levite, also a man of high, uh, high rank, 
And he comes by, he also walks around the man, continues on his way. But it's the third man who comes, who is a Samaritan. And now you have to understand this to really understand the meaning of the Good Samaritan. It's so easy to get this lost, but in Jesus' time, there was no such thing in his cultural view of a Good Samaritan. All Samaritans were bad. The Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. The ill will was shared mutually. They did not relate to each other. And for Jesus to tell this story where the hero of the story would be the enemy of the people, the most despised and hated, and that he would be called good was scandalous and shocking. His hearers were offended by this. That's why he told it, to shock them into a new way of possibly seeing other people. So it is the good Samaritan who rises to the occasion and shows what it means to be a neighbor. And then notice this too. When you think about what is a neighbor, Jesus really flips it. It's not just like a noun, but it's more of a verb of who we are a neighbor to. And what I mean is, if someone were to ask you, who is your neighbor? I think most of us would say uh, someone that lives near us or somebody that we have affinity with, somebody that we share things in common with. That is what we think of if we were to define neighbor. Jesus speaks about a behavior. Someone who treats another person as a neighbor is a neighbor. You are a neighbor to another person, so what that means is that we make neighbors. We can make a neighbor by being a neighbor. So this teaching... And all of this is on my heart right now as I feel incredibly troubled, as I imagine many of us in this room are feeling as we watch this terrible war breaking out between Israel and Hamas. And for me, as I mentioned, having just been there, it feels very, very close. Being in the country, this was my first and so far only experience of being in a country that delved into war while being there. Um, had the experience of hearing air raid sirens. While we were in Jerusalem, um, I was actually in the old city at the time. We heard the air raid sirens. Um, I was hoping it wasn't the sound I thought it was. Um, Interestingly, I was in the Holy Sepulchre, and at the very same time, there was chanting beginning uh, by uh, people who were beginning a service. And uh, what, what a juxtaposition to hear those both at the same time. And even though it turns out the rocket that landed that time wasn't really very close to us, it was close enough. It was a very uncomfortable experience. And that night, uh, that was our last night, my particular last night in the country, I slept with the window open that night. Uh, My daughter, who's 17, who was at the 9 o'clock service, um, she was in the room next door And she didn't know this until she heard it in the earlier sermon. I left my window open intentionally because I wanted to hear, just in case, what might be going on outside. And I literally went to bed that night. I didn't sleep very well. I went to bed listening to the sound of gunfire in the distance. I don't know what the gunfire was. I don't know what it meant or who was shooting. And that's not something you can easily Google and find out. But it makes it all feel very close, and it helps me understand what it feels like for the people who don't have a safe place to leave and come home to, and that is their home, living in that land, all the people. 
Of course, the atrocities committed by Hamas, we didn't know at the time that Saturday morning. We were in the northern part of the country when we first learned, and, and the more we learned, the more we realized just how terrible it was, how heinous those acts were. And, but we have to remember, not only were the acts heinous, but they bring up very difficult memories in the hearts of Jewish people. Past traumas that go deep. I've been you know, trying to read not only American news about this, but news in Israel, um, Israeli news, which thanks to the internet we can, we can now access. And I'm noticing in a lot of the stories they're using the word pogrom to describe what happened that morning. I haven't seen that so much in our news. And a pogrom, of course, is specifically not just any massacre, but it's a massacre intended to kill Jews, um, made famous by the Russians. But the first pogrom is thought to be with the first crusade, which we have to take to heart. Those Christians who were going on their way to the Holy Land on the way committed pogroms against Jewish people. And so this motif, this terrible theme that is recurring now of Jews having to hide for their lives because people are invading their neighborhoods, their homes, seeking them to kill them because of who they are, because of their identity. It brings a lot of trauma right back. And so, of course, Israel has a right to respond and a right to defend itself. But as has been said by many wise people lately, how they do so matters. It really matters. Because it seems that the real solution to this problem is not going to be a military one. If you look at some of the um, conflict with Gaza in recent years, Gaza has been consumed by battles between Israel's mili military and Hamas fighters in 2008, 2012, 2014, and 2021. And every time, uh, the policy has been for Israel to strike back and strike back hard. And that is a particular strategy with, um, you know, w with a, a purpose to it. And if you look at the numbers, um, in just up to 2020, 5,600 Gazans have been killed in these conflicts and 250 Israelis. And on top of that, the blockade of Gaza has grown and grown. Um, aid and, and other things, as we know, uh, sometimes it has been limited with the hope of uh, making it harder for Hamas to be strong, and yet Hamas continues to launch rockets. Hamas continues to be capable of doing things like what we saw. In other words, this approach has had limited success. It hasn't worked. We didn't get to go into Hamas during our trip, but we did spend a lot of time in the West Bank. And one of the places that we went, Bethlehem, which is in the West Bank, um, we had the opportunity to stand right up against one of the famous walls, one of the security walls that um, you can see in, it you know, is the border between West Bank and Israel, but also these walls are being built within the West Bank, separating communities from communities. Um, I've seen pictures of these, but I couldn't believe the size and scale of it when I saw it in real life, how tall the thing can be. 
And as I stood there, interestingly, in Bethlehem, where the wall was built, used to be a busy thoroughfare, a main part of town. It's now a dead end because the wall goes right across the street. And so that street is basically no longer a real working street anymore. And so as I, as I stood literally facing this large gray wall, I thought, I guess Israel has two choices. If you put yourself in Israel's shoes, one is to invest in security. And then the other choice would be to invest in a new relationship that would lessen the need for such security. To invest less in walls and more in bridges. Less in separation and more in compassion. In the possibility, the possibility of being a neighbor. You know, traveling in the West Bank, we had the experience on certain roads of um, going past guards who have their guns trained on you as you, as you drive by. It's an uncomfortable experience. We also saw, and it was pointed out to us, that if you see a home and it has a black water tank on top, which is easy to spot, you know those are the Palestinian homes because the Palestinian homes can have their water cut off at any time. And, and they never know when. Typically in the summertime, they only get water for two days out of the week and they don't know which days those, those are going to be. So everybody gets the black tanks as a way of coping and they fill them with water when they can so that they can take showers, they can cook, they can use water when the water gets cut off and they need it. It's not being a neighbor. Life in Gaza, too, which we didn't get to visit, as I said, has been hard for decades and decades. Uh, you certainly know that in Gaza there's a population of 2.1 million people and half of them are children. And there's limited access, even on a good day, to food and water. And what I think is even worse is how little access there is to hope, to a good livelihood with dignity for men and women. Aid groups have reported that mental health issues have been on the rise, especially with women. And this is before the recent war. And then one of the statistics that blows me away is that the per capita income in Gaza is only $1,250. I can't imagine living on that, knowing that in Israel, the cost of living is not that different than it is here. And significantly, too, worth remembering is that 80% of the citizens of Gaza are registered refugees. And it is said that if you ask a 10-year-old child where he is from, he will tell you where his people came from before 1948. This knowledge from the grandparents' and great-grandparents' generation. Um, and he will tell you exactly where his home was, what it was like. The story is passed down. Even though families haven't been there since they had to flee in 1948, many families still hold the keys to their homes that they haven't lived in since then, including the paperwork to the homes that they used to own. As if there's a hope that someday they'll be able to use those keys again, when in reality, many of those homes have been bulldozed years and years ago. Now, this is a reality. But, of course, this does not justify in any way what Hamas has done. But what it does justify is us to look with compassion upon other people. 
And what I am afraid of is that even if these bombs and rockets that are raining down and these ap activities of cutting off aid or, or not opening up checkpoints for aid to come in, even if they are targeted at terrorists, they are leading to the deaths of thousands of innocent people too. And even if there may be a short-term gain for security, inevitably this is going to raise such trauma for untold generations that I fear the result is going to be worse than we started with. Now hear this. Security and peace are not one and the same. Security is needed when there is no peace. And peace gives us the privilege of not needing to worry about security. Security and peace are not one and the same. In these days, we need peacemakers on all sides to come forward. And actually, this is the good news, because they are there. The peacemakers are there, they do exist, and you, if you look past the headlines, might see them. And I encourage you to do so. The headlines are hard to look past because they are in our face, but if you dig a little further, the peacemakers do exist. We met some of them on our trip, I can tell you. And while they are not empowered by the powers that be right now, we need to find them and we need to find ways to empower them so that the cycle that has been going for generations might, we pray, come to an end. And so I want to leave with two voices of people who live this struggle and who both long to see peace. First, an Arab voice, and then an Israeli voice. So first, I will share with you about a man named Fadi Abu Shamala. He works in Gaza with an organization called Just Vision. Nicholas Kristof has written about him, um, and he shares that he was invited by the State Department to come to the United States because he was seen as a potential bridge across cultures. So Nick Kristoff was recently on a phone call with him. He's back at home. And over the phone, he said, I love you, speaking of Americans. He said, you are so kind to me. Nick Kristoff said uh, that he thanked him, but he noted that we are also providing some of the bombs being dropped near him. And he said he doubted that the Americans that he so admired understood how the war was actually playing out against civilians. He said, is it a war against Hamas, really, or against my kids? And he said that as the bombs dropped, he has tried to calm his terrified children by saying to them, meaning to be helpful, that if they could hear the explosions, they're safe. It's the bombs that you never hear that kill you. And as you might imagine, that has backfired. In the, uh, now in the silence, the children are terrified, being worried about being obliterated. And yet, this man said, I love you. You are so kind. Also, the Israeli that I mentioned, he's a man named Benzian Sanders, a former IDF soldier who recently wrote an opinion piece. And he said, Ami Ayalon who is the former head of the Israeli security service himself, has argued for years that Palestinian terror can be defeated only by, defeating, uh, only by creating Palestinian hope. 
Palestinian terror can be defeated only by creating Palestinian hope. Jesus summarizes all the law into two points, just two pomegranate seeds. Love God and love your neighbor. As simple as it is hard and as hard as it is necessary. Amen.